The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And lots of fun stuff going on in technology as always. We're going to talk about a guy who lost a hard drive at the dump. And it has over $250 million worth of Bitcoin contained in it. This guy's going crazy. And we'll talk about how he's going to try to retrieve it from the dump, if they'll let him. Uh, They finally looked at that NSO Group's uh, software that was hacking into iPhone, Pegasus, and uh, and identified uh, one of the exploits they used to hack into the iPhone without even clicking on it. It's interesting to go down and look at that process to see what subroutine had the zero day exploit and and where that subroutine actually came from. Uh, they're now out with the bit lists of the top programming languages. So if you want to learn a programming language in 2022, you're just getting into IT, we'll give you the list of what you ought to be looking at. This week, we're going to feature uh, Bob uh, Miner. He's co-founder of Oracle and the... Um, and the producer of Oracle's Relational Database Management System. He was the programmer behind Larry Ellison. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Judy in Naples. Dear Tech Talk, I just bought my son a new laptop for his birthday. As I was paying the cashier, they told me I need to let the battery charge 100% before I let my son use it. In the past, I've always just unboxed my new laptops and plugged them in. As far as I know, there was never never a problem. You really think I've got to recharge the battery fully before I give it to him? Judy in Naples, Florida. Well, Judy, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with letting your son unpack the new laptop himself and start using it right away. Just make certain he plugs in the uh, the laptop to the uh, to the wall while he's using it, so it will be fully charged. More than likely, the battery is only partially charged, and the AC adapter will charge the battery fully. Now, I would advise you to have him keep the laptop plugged in until the battery is 100% charged before unplugging it. That will, uh, that will, that kind of protocol will help protect the life of the battery. We got an email from Bob in Maryland, dear Doc and Andrew. I came across this article that claims Ethereum's days are numbered, even if it gets reformed, because the fees are just too high. Is Ethereum really finished? Is that true, Doc? I thought that Vitalik Buterin was not the kind of guy who would create a product with such excessive fees. What do you think? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, 
What you're seeing unfold before our very eyes are evolving standards. Uh, and these evolving standards are being created for blockchains, for NFTs and everything. And this is how technology is developed. Now, Bitcoin was actually the first generation blockchain. It was proof of concept. Now, all the Bitcoin blockchain can do is just trade Bitcoins. It didn't have any utility beyond trading Bitcoins. It was, um, it was uh, created by, the, uh, by uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, or uh, that's the pseudonym for the creator. Uh, as a proof of principle that you could actually pay, use cryptocurrency to encourage uh, individuals to use their own computer power to validate transactions on a block, on a public blockchain. And so it turned out that that was a very successful proof of, uh, proof of, uh, of uh, concept and Bitcoin was sustained. Now, that was in 2008. It wasn't until 2015 that the second generation blockchain came out, and that was Ethereum. So Ethereum added a scripting language on top of the basic blockchain. Now, the validation in Ethereum was done the same way that the validation was done in Bitcoin. Proof of work, a lot of, co lot of computational power. But because now there was a scripting language on top of it, you could have smart contracts and you could have distributed finance where uh, you could basically build into a contract what would happen if this event happens or that event happens. And when those things occur, the smart contract automatically is implemented. So Ethereum had real usability. Now, the problem with Ethereum was that it was built on the basic uh, Bitcoin uh, blockchain concept of proof of work. And it just took a lot of work to do that validation. So uh, Ethereum was not really scalable because it was very different. It, it took so long to do the proof of work that you could not you could not approve a new block fast enough to have it scale. And so there are all kinds of workarounds that companies have been doing that with to, to solve this problem, which I'll get to in a minute. But then recently there was a third generation blockchain which was developed cardano and their their cryptocurrency is ada ada i've talked about this this in the past previously now it turns out that cardano was created by uh, one of the co-founders of ethereum charles hoskinson he and buterin uh vitalik buterin had a huge disagreement uh, Hawkinson th th felt that you should have code repositories, you'd have a code development process similar to what they use for the internet where people will write code, they'll write a, a paper on it, they'll get it approved through peer review, and then after it has been approved through peer review, it'll be implemented in the, in the block. That's a very, uh, very logical way to develop open source software. And so he set out to develop a scalable system from the beginning. So he's using proof of stake, which means you basically, if you're going to be a validator, you've got to uh, put up money to, to validate that you're going to do, do a, a validation correctly. And with proof of stake, it's very quick to do. So it was designed from the beginning to be scalable. And... 
And it was designed from the beginning to have uh, a logical code repository on top of it. Now, Ethereum is really run by Vitalik Buterin. He is the what they call the benevolent dictator, and he controls it all. It is all in his vision. Now, he is moving to proof of stake, and so the question is, uh, is the proof of stake going to be soon enough for Ethereum to prevail? Right now, the, uh, the um, DeFi distributed finance applications are sitting on top of it, on the NFT applications sitting on top of Ethereum. They have a workaround. They've created side blockchains, which are not part of the Ethereum blockchain, and they'll do their high-speed transactions in the sidechain, and then they will periodically download the sidechain data to Ethereum, and that allows them to lower their fees. It's kind of kludgy, and, it, and it's working to a certain degree, uh, and uh, hopefully Ethereum will come along and be, be competitive so the sidechains won't be used. But the fact is, Ethereum was first mover, 95% of all the NFTs are sitting on top of the Ethereum blockchain. So they are well positioned to be a winner, but it's all going to depend on, it's all going to depend on uh, Vitalik Buterin. Now, in terms of kind of development cycle, the, uh, for instance, let, let's go back to some of the open source code that's behind the internet. TCPIP was invented in the summer of 1973 by Bob Kahn and Vince Cerf. The summer of 1973. Look how long ago that was. The internet did not achieve worldwide deployment until 1994, 21 years later. And that's after the browser had been invented. When the browser was invented by uh, um, Tim Berners-Lee, uh, then all of a sudden people could use it. It became accessible. You could say we now had an ecosystem that had been established for utilizing the, the internet. What, what we are now searching now for is an ecosystem that's going to be built on top of the blockchain. So the blockchain was invented back in 2008, uh, 2018. 21 years after that is going to be 2029. So a 20-year cycle for broad-scale deployment is not so unusual. So I think when the standards are evolved, when we actually have sufficient uh, uh, ecosystem in place so that just the everyday guy can get a wallet and he can use it easily, when the validation is not so um, power intensive and the, the fees are lower, and when we have a well-developed code base where we're not going to have... Um, hackable. It's not so hackable. I think that we will see broad scale deployment. I don't think we know who the winners are going to be uh, yet, but a leading indicator, if I might add, is you look at GitHub. GitHub is a repository of open source code. And in 2021, the number one program in terms of open code commits, this is when they make code changes and they commit it to the to the, uh, and they publish it as a commit. Uh, the number one uh, blockchain with GitHub commits was Cardano. So if that would be a leading indicator, and Cardano had almost 
five times as many commits as Ethereum. So if that's a leading indicator, it would show that Cardano is going to win. Uh, but it really all depends on uh, Vitalik Buterin. Sorry, that was kind of a long explanation, but it's it's interesting how that how that develops. Oh, we got another, we got a continued email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, of course, most people know that El Salvador boldly stepped into the crypto world, while other countries like the U.S. and China are moving cautiously. For example, some Salvadorians claim that uh, funds, after they just jumped in first, that some of their funds are missing from their Chivo wallets. Hundreds of Salvadorians claim that money is Money is vanishing from their Bitcoin accounts. Doc, can you get a handle on what's going on here? All your best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, <laughs> this is another problem with new technology. I mean, crypto wallets have become a target. Stolen funds are not easily traced. And this trend is exacerbated by the lack of regulatory oversight. There are no regulatory standards on cryptocurrency. There are no regulatory requirements. No one is accountable for checking the viability of the codes or the consequences of a hack. Now, this will come as blockchain matures. Now, I mean, let's look at what has happened when we had new, other new developments. Say, when the stock market began, there was no regulation. And then we came out with the Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC, to manage and regulate stocks to, you know, control insider trading, for instance. Now, when banks were started, it was the Wild West. And we didn't have a good solid banking system until the Federal Reserve System was created. Right now, there are no crypto regulators. I think a parallel stream of development to, to make blockchain go mainstream will be the development of uh, regulatory standards that are not too overbearing, but they actually hold people accountable for missing funds. And I think that is going to have to come. Right now, probably a lot of these funds are missing because of uh, identity theft. People are just a little careless on how they set up their accounts. And there have been cases where uh, money's disappeared from wallets, and they don't know whether the owner of the repository stole the Bitcoin or not. There just wasn't enough regulatory oversight. So that is a problem in general. But it will be fixed, and I predict that by 21 years after 2008, 2029, we're going to have all the standards in place. We're going to have solidified around an efficient blockchain. We'll have the regulatory processes documented and in law, and blockchain are going to be ready to go mainstream. And I do think it's inevitable that blockchain will go mainstream because blockchain is the first improvement to accounting systems since the Medici's introduced double entry accounting back in uh, back in uh, Florence in the in the uh, you know in the 1800s 1700s. So uh, I think it's inevitable that we're going to see blockchains deployed, but we just have to get all the ecosystem in place. We got an email from June in Burke. Dear Tech Talk, I heard your discussion about inkjet versus laser printers. Now, it's true that inkjet cartridges are initially lower cost. Inkjet printers are initially low cost, but very expensive when you factor in the ink. However, I must say you failed to consider tanked inkjet printers. 
What's your opinion about a tanked ink, ink jet printer, June in Burke? Well, June, that is an excellent question and an excellent observation because tanked printers, okay, what that is, what, what is a tanked printer? Instead of having an ink cartridge that includes the ink as well as the printhead, you basically have a, uh, a reservoir for the ink. That's the tank. And you've got an ink reservoir for four primary colors, three primary colors plus black. Some of the more uh, sophisticated tanked inkjet printers have six colors plus black. And so you basically refill the tank. And those systems, the ink is much cheaper. Instead of being 15 cents a copy to print something out, you're, you're looking at one to two cents a copy. Uh, some of the tanked printers, they give you enough ink to last two years when you buy it. And you might, you, you know, you might spend less than $20 a year on all your ink for the tank printers. So it has made a huge, huge impact. Now, in the beginning, these tank printers had all kinds of issues. They, they were hard to fill the tanks. People were making a mess. And there's nothing worse than getting inkjet ink spilled on a rug. You're never going to get that stain out. So it was, they were not so convenient in the beginning. So uh, I, I started looking at tank printers. I recently almost, uh, I, I had a printer that was failing here. It was a, a, a cartridge inkjet printer. It was failing and I was getting ready to buy a new printer and I would have bought a tank printer, but I decided to take my old printer apart to try to fix it since I was going to throw it away anyway. You got a $100 printer, you can't take it to a repair shop. You throw it away if it doesn't work. But I thought, well, shoot, why don't I try to fix it? So I took it apart and I found something wrong with a plastic part in the paper feed chain and I popped it back in place and now my printer works. So I ended up not getting a tank printer, but I think these are very good options. Now, because of the uh, reviews and whether pe people like them, I, I, I decided, since I don't actually have one, I decided to go to con the Consumer Reports Review, June, to sort of give you a report. Consumer Reports, they surveyed 138,000 Consumer Report members about their experiences with tanked printers that they had used between 2023, 2013 and 2020. And... Based on those reviews, uh, Consumer Reports will only recommend one printer, the Epson EcoTank printer, the Epson EcoTank model. And they've got, they've got several EcoTank printers in the Epson line, depending on how much you want to spend. But you can get an Epson EcoTank printer for about $300, and, um, and your ink costs are going to be de minimis. So... Um, if you really want to get a tank printer, June, I'd recommend you go after the Epson Eco Tank model. That's going to be my next printer. If this printer that I've got ever breaks, that'll be my, my next printer. Because the tank printers have finally reached the performance, the reliability, and the cost trifecta. They're they check all three of those boxes. Doc, how big are they, though? I mean, how big is each tank, and is the entire unit then larger than a, the other kind of printer? No, it's they are they're, the form. They're probably thirty percent larger in terms of height, but the but the tank is you know it's it's not that big of a tank. It's you know it's probably six ounces. 
I mean, the the tanks are not huge. It's probably six or eight ounces. So the manufacturers are careful to – it's the same footprint because that's going to be important to people. It's the, the same footprint. And but it's a little taller. Yeah, It's a little taller. But it depends on which model you buy. I mean, you see the size if you want to have duplex – I mean, if you want to have a duplex uh, scanner as well as a duplex printer, that that increases the the size. But they're they're a little bit taller because the tank uh, that that you know the tanks are about uh, uh, they're they're about two and a half inches tall. So the the printer is just a little bit taller, but it's the same footprint. And um, uh, and they've they got great great reviews. Now, the, the one disadvantage with the tanks, of course, is that when you add more ink, you're still using the same uh, print head. You know, the print head has these little holes in it that squirts the ink in. When you're using the, when you're using the, uh, the cartridges, every time you change the cartridge, you change the print head. That's one reason why they're so expensive. So these, these tanked printers, uh, you don't change the print head. So uh, I would advise you if you get a tank printer, only use the authorized ink. Don't get some cheap knockoff because you may clog your uh, your print head, and that would be a disaster. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, indeed we will. And stick around because we meet the co-founder of the Oracle Corporation next in Profiles in IT on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Robert Nimrod Miner. They call him Bob Miner. Robert Nimrod Miner is best known as co-founder of the Oracle Corporation and the producer of Oracle's relational database management system. Now, Bob Miner was born December 23, 1941 in Cicero, Illinois. His family was from Iran and they, uh, his family migrated to the U.S. In the, during the 20s, 1920s. 
Now, Bob Miner graduated in 1963 with a master's in math from the University of Illinois. And then he went on to work uh, at various uh, technology companies. In 1977, Bob Miner met Larry Ellison at Ampex, where he was Larry's supervisor. Now, Bob left Ampex to found a company called Software Development Laboratories with Ed Oates and Bruce Scott. These both, these, both of these guys worked at Ampex. About a year later, Larry Ellison joined the group. Now, uh, and they were all working on this company, Software Development Laboratories. But, uh, but they decided to pivot. Ellison and Miner uh, decided that they should pivot to relational database management systems after they read a paper by E.F. Codd in the IBM Journal of Research and Development. Now, the key insight that Ellison and Miner had was that they figured if IBM is interested in relational database management systems, they would probably make this for their high-end mainframes. And they would uh, not make it available for lower-end mini computers or desktops. So they decided to make a version of a relational database management systems for smaller computers. That was the basic concept. Now the now, the idea behind relational database too that we should say because this is sort of a corporate thing, um, but it, you know c companies come in large and small sizes. Eventually, every company wants to use this. All it is is basically if you have two sets of lists. For example, you here's a really quick example. You want to know what a person what the you have a person's name and address. You want to know what that person ever bought from your company. You're able to re retrieve that information related to that name from another database of all the things you've ever sold. Or you could do it in reverse. You say, well, how many of these products have have this one product have we sold? And you can find out how many and who from the other database. So that's the relationship between two databases. So that's a very simple idea, but then you extend it, you know, it gets more complex. But this is something every company really needs to have. That's right. So there's a key that's used to relate the two databases. So like the key could be social security number, and you could have that key in like multiple databases, and then you could actually relate those databases so you could look at all the fields that have that same social security number to get the address, the name, and all. It's a relational database. It's a much, much more efficient way to store data rather than the old way of a flat database where you would just have one giant table. And so it's a much more efficient way to do it. Now, they had the advantage, EF Cod had developed this uh, relational database concept, but IBM had their own cash cow database that they were just pumping out to the customers. And they were slow rolling Cod's development, even though it was extremely innovative and would have a huge impact on data management. So they were slow rolling it. So Cod went out to the customers and showed them what he could do. And then the customers pressured IBM management to actually implement it. Now, IBM was a little bit teed off at this. So they created a team to implement Cod's ideas that did not include Cod, and they forbid the team from talking to Cod. So then they developed this on its side. Now, all of this internal politics at IBM slowed down their development. And this helped Oracle. 
because they were just marching right along and they were doing it. So Oracle, they they actually, uh, Oracle then implemented a relational database system and you would talk to that database using a language. Now this was a language that IBM had developed, structured query language. It's a standard way to query the database. And so they used structured query language and they developed a relational database that would run on a PDP 11. And, uh, and then, and what happened was they, uh, as soon as they got the idea to, to start this company, Ellison and Miner, they pooled $1,500 in savings. I mean, they, they, you know, Larry Ellison wasn't rich then. They pulled $1,500 in savings. They rented some office space in Belmont, California. Uh, Ellison became the CEO and president. He took charge of sales and marketing. And Miner supervised the software development. And they started working on this thing. But they didn't have all the politics of IBM. So they were actually developing this thing relatively quickly. Now, Bob Miner's management style is a, in stark contrast to Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison is a hard-driving sales manager. Uh, now, Miner, on the other hand, expected his uh, engineers to produce, but he didn't agree with making them work 24-7. He thought it was wrong for people to work late at night and never see their family, so he wanted some work-life balance, which is completely different than Larry Ellison. Now, in order to get this thing kicked off, they needed a customer. Well, it turned out they had been working uh, uh, on uh, with the previous company with the CIA. So they convinced the CIA to use an to, to use an open task order contract uh, and 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 award them a task of fifty thousand dollars to build a relational database. And so they used that fifty thousand dollars of CIA funding to build the first version of the Oracle database, version one. And uh, they produced that in less than a year. Miner was really the uh, the key technical guy on it. Do now, we know what sort later, of data? Do we know what sort of data was in that CIA? You know, like what what exactly? How, what are the tables? What's in the tables? <laughs> I think the table they they were like organizing intelligence data. I mean, they were organ because they have all these sources of intelligence and they. Uh, different people, and they were trying to organize all their intelligence data. So this was a highly classified database. The technology wasn't classified, but the data itself was. And CIA really, they felt that, I mean, the CIA felt that in order to be competitive in the intelligence field, you had to be able to access and organize data quickly. Now, in two years, they came out with version two. So Version 2, and version 2 ran on the PDP-11. And version 2 came out two years before IBM released their version. So Oracle was the first to hit the street with a relational database system running on PDP-11. Now, version 3 came out uh, shortly thereafter, and Bob Miner actually programmed the majority of version 3. Now, the founders then, it wasn't called Oracle then. I mean, the founders changed the name of their company because remember, they uh, changed the name of the company to Relational Software, Inc. in 1979. And then in 1982, they changed the name to Oracle Systems Corporation with the main product being Oracle. 
Now, from 1977 to 1992, Bob Miner led all product design and development for Oracle Relation Database System. He was the chief technology officer for the company. I don't know if they had that title, but that was really his role. And, that, and that's 15 years. That's a long time. Yeah. That's a long time. Now, 1992, uh, he left that role because he he was ill, which I'll explain in a minute. And he and he and he spun off to a small advanced technology group. He decided he wanted to focus on innovation again. And I think this main work at Oracle had turned into production, software production. And he wanted to go back to an advanced technology development. That was his love. So he spun off a small group with an Oracle to do that in 1992. Now, Ellison was considered the hard driving brains of the company. Miner was considered to be the heart of the company. He wanted his, his employees to see their families. Now, in 1993, a year after he did the spin-out group, he was diagnosed with a form of lung cancer, a rare form of lung cancer caused by exposure to asbestos. He died November 11th, 1944, with a net worth around $600 million. 1994, we got to... 1994, <laughs> yeah. 1994, yeah. Uh, now, Miner, uh, you know, his his wife was interested in wine. So they, Miner and his wife, owned the Oakville Ranch Vineyard. Now, Miner also served on the board of the San Francisco French American School. He survived by his wife, Mary, and three children. So he, he was a, a guy who really made an impact in, in the whole world of relational databases because he was able to uh, launch it, sell, and then Larry Ellison sold it, and they had broad-scale deployment of uh, the relational database management system built on top of the SQL language. So it was an interesting, interesting story. And I feel and like your first story here yeah. is that, boy, that, that EF COD I mean, by the way, EFCOT eventually left IBM in disgust and started another company. Of course. Yeah, that it, happens. It was, uh, it, I mean, it, this is a classic case where you've got a new innovation is going to cannibalize a cash cow, and IBM did not want to cannibalize the cash cow, so they slow rolled the innovation. Sort of classic big, big company mistakes. Yeah. So there you go. Everything you'd want to know about Bob Nimrod Miner, co-founder of Oracle, and the producer of the Oracle Relational Database System. So we just heard about the um, contrast in personalities between Bob Miner and Larry Ellison. Uh, so next, Doc will explore the idea, you know, that this contrast is vital in starting up a tech company. It's Showman and the Nerd next on Talk Tech Talk Live Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now let's look at the composition of a typical tech startup. You always have the same mix of characters in these startups. You've got the showman and you've got the nerd. You look at Larry Ellison and Robert Miner. Larry Ellison was the showman, the visionary. Robert Miner was the guy who wrote the code that brought Oracle to life. You've got Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak at Apple. Steve Jobs was a showman. He couldn't write a line of code. Steve Wozniak wrote all the code pretty much for the um, original Apple, and he was project technical lead for the Apple II, and the cash cow that Apple had in the beginning was all produced by Wozniak. But Steve was the visionary who took it beyond that. But isn't it a little sad? It's the guy who does the actual work and is the brains without whom uh, without whom th- there would be no product, and yet it's the showman that we always remember. It's the Steve. You say Apple, you think Steve Jobs. You, you know, Oracle, you think Larry Ellison. Microsoft, you think Bill Gates. I mean, you might remember, but I bet the name recognition of Paul Allen is way below that of Bill Gates. It is. It is way low. Well, uh, now, now, Steve Jobs didn't call it the showman and the nerd. He had something else. Steve Jobs said he was the conductor. And he was conducting an orchestra. And that Wozniak was the lead violinist, so to speak. And and it was Steve Jobs' job to make certain that the orchestra played well. Uh, and it was Wozniak's job to make certain that the violins played well. And that's how Steve Jobs looked at it. So it's, um, Wozniak did not like that viewpoint at all. But, but if you look at, say, Steve Jobs and Wozniak, Wozniak never could get beyond the vision of creating a computer for the homebrew club. You know, these are guys that want to tinker with the computer. So he wanted it open source. Uh, he wanted open architecture. He wanted to be able to take apart the unit so you could swap out components. That's what the homebrew guy does. That was his vision. Steve's job vision was a closed system. You don't let the user in the system at all. And um, that's that's the vision at Apple, all the way through to the iPhone. So Wozniak, he was the technical guy that powered up through Apple II, but he never could uh, release the vision that they had when they first started out. They couldn't. He could never pivot from that vision. And I think uh, Steve Jobs was able to pivot quite easily. Then, of course, you've got Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Paul Allen was the technical guy behind it. Steve Gates was the uh, was the nerd, was the uh, was the visionary. 
And Steve Gates, uh, rather Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates could actually uh, actually change the direction of Microsoft over time. And uh, but eventually, uh, Bill Gates's vision became um, outmoded, and and they had to bring in a cloud computing guy to uh, to sort of take Microsoft to the next level. Then, of course, you've got Google. You got the two vision guys, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They were not very good at coding. The guy that did the sort of the heavy lifting on coding on the Google in the beginning was Urs Hotzel. Probably never heard of him. No, that is a real trivia question there. That's right. That's, the fi- that's a final round trivia question. I'd say that is. And then after that, the guy who wrote scalable code, who wrote most of the huge, huge scalable subroutines at Google was Jeff Dean. And Jeff Dean is like, within Google, is like a god. He, they said, um, you know, Jeff Dean, uh, he can he can write code that works well the first time. He's like, uh, and and they said he writes perfectly organized code that is elegant. Uh, and so, Sergey Brin and Larry Page had a couple of techies behind them in order to let this thing going. So, as a team, it's really important. You need. Uh, you need somebody to get the vision for the company, where it's going to go, where the niche is, and then. But you got to execute. You, you got to produce something that that actually works. So you need the nerd there to produce something that's going to work. Now, according to Derek Liddell, he's a uh, he analyzes businesses. He's a he's a startup expert. He said there are basically four stages in inter- enterprise growth. You've got the customer validation phase. This is where you got to get a real customer. And you need somebody who can sell your product to get a real customer. Now, in the case of Oracle, the real customer was the CIA. And it doesn't get more real than that, the CIA. That's, that's a right. pretty good first customer. That's a that's a great first customer. And so uh, I'm certain that Larry Ellison went in there and made the sale. And so they got a real customer there. So they could actually, their first database was honed on actually a problem that a real customer had. Then what you have to get is operational validation. You got to get a real product that's working. This is where you need the nerd. And this is where uh, Robert Miner came in or Steve Wozniak. You had to basically deliver a product. And um, and Bob Miner delivered, uh, you know, version one of Oracle to the CIA and they were happy with it. Then you've got to have functional validation where you've got to satisfy your customers, you've got to be able to compete against the competition, and you've got to vary your product mix. Now, now uh, Bob Miner was, was good at all that. He, he was involved with version one of Oracle, version two of Oracle. He wrote practically all of version three. So he was able to, to build the technology base of Oracle upon which Larry Ellis could, uh, could fly. Then you've got to have self-sustainability. This is where you've got to innovate again. So you remember where uh, Bob Miner, after 15 years, went back to the uh, to, to the innovation lab within Oracle. He wanted to get back into the innovation cycle. Now, what Larry Ellison was good at doing was actually keeping that innovation flywheel going. Larry Ellison brought in more people, and they and Oracle ended up innovating far beyond just the original 
uh, relational database management system. And I think Larry Ellison's vision drove that innovation. And, um, and Bob Miner, had he not died at age 51, I think he would have been, he was going to go back to be a driver of that innovation cycle. Now, it's in the third stage where uh, many uh, startups fail because the organization needs to be able to function less with the, they, they don't need the founders for this. They need to have a development team that can really put this off. They need to function like a well-oiled machine. And if the founders are keeping too much control over it, they fail. Uh, for instance, that may be what's happening with Ethereum right now. Vitalik Buterin is keeping too much control over Ethereum and that's slowing them down. So I'd say Ethereum, even though it's uh, open source, is really in the functional validation stage, and stage three, and um, they're failing to keep up. Isn't it a natural thing, too, as a human being? I mean, you invent something and it's very successful at first and it's doing well. And then you're thinking, well, this is my idea and this is the way it works. And you're having a hard time getting to a point where now you need, you need to just not just replicate what you're doing, but expand what you're doing. And you've got to release it to other people. Yeah, yeah. So the thing is, so so a leader of a company, they have to turn over what they did in the beginning to others and move on to something else. And, many and that's hard to do sometimes. Founders yeah. just can't do that. Yes. That's why that's why there's certain some founders that just have a they're bit like like they're st serial startup company. They they're serial uh, founders of startups because they, they like to do the startup phase and once it gets to phase stage three, they want to bail out and go to the next thing. So there are a lot of founders that actually like to stay in the formative stages. It's not, it's rare if you can have a founder that can, that can stay all through all four stages, particularly if they're funded by VCs, because the VCs are ruthless. They come in there, they put in their money. If you're not, if, if you're not, if you don't have the skill set for the current stage your company's in, they're going to replace you, whether you like it or not. Yeah, you have to understand that you're not just getting money with VCs to implement your ideas. You're actually giving up control of ideas uh, if, if it's not working for the VC, That's for right. the venture capitalist. Yeah. So the hardest area is the self-sustainability. And this is where you, uh, you want to innovate uh, to come up with new products. Because, and if you can't do that, your company is going to be known as a one-trick pony. You got one product and that was it. So what else do you have? And so in order to innovate, you have to cannibalize some of your products uh, as you're bringing out new products. And companies frequently have trouble doing that. Look, look, look at, look at uh, you know, IBM with EF Cod's development of relational databases. They did not want to cannibalize their cash cow, and it really slowed innovation. So I think startups have, they, you tend to have this standard formation of the initial team. And I think people, you know, you self-select, you, you want to have the guy who can do the selling. You want to have a guy who can do say the development, you might want a finance guy. And so the initial team that you select, you want to get complementary skill sets so that you've got all the elements of the company to build it. And, and at least so you can get up to the third stage of development when you can start hiring more people. So it's always fun to look at the initial makeup of these companies and they always start out with a showman and a nerd. Yeah. Doc, uh, we'll take a little break because we got more things to talk about, including how to recover. <laughs>
excuse me, how to recover Bitcoin from the town dump. Uh, Tuck Talk Radio continues. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about the guy who lost 7,500 bitcoins back in 2013. Now, IT worker James Howells, uh, had been uh, mining Bitcoin back in the formative stages, and he had a digital drive that 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 had on it 7,500 Bitcoins. A wallet was on that drive, and that um, that he originally mined, uh, you know, back in around 2009. This was only uh, you know a year after Bitcoin had been developed. So those initial miners, the Bitcoin was really easy to mine. It didn't take a lot of processing power. And he managed to, uh, to mine 7,500 Bitcoins right in the beginning. And um, at the current value, those 7,500 Bitcoins are now worth $273 million. Now, he discovered <laughs> when he went back to find that drive, once Bitcoin started going up in value, that... He had apparently thrown it away when he threw out an old computer, which, uh, which contained that drive, and he threw it out uh, between June and August of 2013. He went back and figured out exactly when he was, between June and August of 2013, and he figured out, then he went out to the city dump where they take things, and he figured out where they were putting the garbage back in 2013. So he mapped out an area of the dump where he believes his hard drive is now in its final resting place. This is not in the United States, by the way. This was in no. Wales in the United Kingdom. It's in yeah. Wales, yeah. 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 So, he, so he went to, uh, to, uh, to the Newport City Council uh, there in Wales, and he asked for permission to dig up in a specific part of the dump. Now, what now, do you think they say? What do you think they say if somebody walks up? 
<laughs> I want to dig up the dump. And, and I know where it might be, but, you know, that doesn't really make it more attractive to the city council to say, yeah, let's start digging up the dump for everybody who comes and says, I lost something once. I know. See, what, well, what they're afraid of, if they dig up the dump, there's going to be an ecological nightmare. Yeah. That there's going to bring up all this garbage. The garbage is going to be polluting. They're going to have to put the garbage somewhere. And they think it's going to it's going to violate all sorts of safety and environmental standards. But he says, look, what I'm going to do, I'm going to give the city 25 percent of the bitcoins. Now, that that's actually worth quite a bit of money. You know, that's like, you know, over, you know, 50, 60 million dollars. And that'd be a lot of money for that small city. And um, and so we figured, well, surely they're going to let me dig up my hard drive if I give them 25% of the bitcoins. And I just checked before we went on the air. The city council has turned him down yet again because they said, look, what could happen? You could dig up the landfill. We'd have to spend millions to store and treat the waste that you dig up. And there's no guarantee that you're going to find the hard drive. So who's going to pay us then? Well, that's true because it's actually contingent on success. That's right. So they're turning him down, but he hasn't given up. He's still working on them because here's the thing. I mean, maybe the hard drive is crushed because he's going to have it's been underwater. Now, now, fortunately, if the, the mag, if the magnetic disk isn't damaged, probably the magnetic uh, informa- magnetically stored information is still on the disk. And they could, uh, I think, take it to a disk restoration service, they could carefully remove the platen and they could put it into another hard drive that was fully functional and probably get the data from it, you know, assuming they're, that, you know, the disk, the, the platen wasn't damaged at all. But it's kind of a high risk deal. And so he's still trying to get the city council to do this. I think there are a lot of people like him that have just lost their Bitcoin wallets to people back in the beginning when Bitcoin was only worth a penny or two. You know, he probably didn't think it was worth anything like $10 back in the day. But I hope that uh, James Howells can convince the city council to dig up his lost Bitcoin because it would be a game changer for him and for the city. Now, let's look. You've heard about this NSO group. This is this Israeli group that made the iPhone hacking tools, uh, Pegasus. And, and I always now, have to defend the uh, our local orchestra. It's not the National Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> it's oh, no, the, that's it's right. a different NSO, different NSO. That's right. That's right. It's, it's a different NSO. And uh, uh, what, what does that stand? What, what does the spyware? Yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a secret. After all, they're a spyware company. Yeah. NSO. We'd have to look that up. Company. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know where that name came from, but they uh, the NSO group. I'm looking at their. I'm looking at their website now. I don't really see where the name came from. But uh, this is a group in, uh, in Israel, and it's, and it's actually started by a bunch of former intelligence guys. So, so they, they, they can develop hacking tools that are at the state level, really. I'm really, you know, there's, unfortunately, there are a lot of intelligence guys that go from the intelligence, government intelligence, into the private sector to start companies, go back and forth. This is happening too often. So they they released Pegasus, which uh, which would allow them to hack an iPhone, 
and you don't have to do anything. They just they just send you a file and you could hack into it and you could turn on the camera, turn on the microphone. And this their software was used by governments to track down dissidents. Uh, Kasoji, that was the, the guy that was the, uh, um, yeah, the you know, Saudi Arabian journalist by, yeah. the, by the, the Saudis and that uh, in, in the Turkish embassy. His group of friends were all being tracked using this software. So they knew exactly where he was when they went to get him. I found so, out the name of the uh, company, by the way, NSO. It's uh, three founders. They are Israeli guys. So the names are Niv, Shalef, and Omri, NSO. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Perfect. Got that. Perfect. So the researchers at uh, Google's Project Zero published a d- detailed breakdown of this uh, NSO exploit, and they, they dubbed it forced entry, and it can take over the phone. Now, this exploit was targeted uh, against specifically Apple phones, and it's thought to have led to hacking of devices in multiple countries, including several U.S. State Department officials working in Uganda. The use of forced entry only requires that you have the phone number or the Apple ID user, Apple user ID. That's all you need, either the phone number or the user ID. Now, now the attack is really quite simple. Uh, what appears to be a GIF, which is like a GIF is like an animated image, a GIF image, uh, is texted to the victim's phone via iMessage. Now, however, this image is really not a GIF. It's actually a malicious PDF file that's dressed up with a .gif extension. So as soon as it hits the phone, it's then interpreted by the uh, by the by the software within the phone. Now, it's once the phone opens that GIF image, it's taken over. You don't even have to click on the GIF image. Now, the, the recipient doesn't, doesn't have to click on anything, doesn't have to do anything. It's basically taking advantage of a zero-day exploit in Apple's image rendering library, Core Graphics. Now, this is the software that the iOS uses to process on-device imagery and media. Now, if you remember the origins of the operating system, the Apple operating system, both for the Mac and the and the iPhone is is basically based on the next operating system that Steve Jobs had developed when he was kicked out of Apple back in the day. Oh my goodness, we're almost out of time. So they were using an open source version of uh, of a thing for the images. Listen, we love your emails. I'll finish this story next week when we have time. We love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And tell them you heard about it on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.